Hello everyone, welcome to the PwC Tax Byte podcast series. My name is Peter and I'm welcoming in my virtual recording studio Jean-Philippe van West, senior counsel in our team, part-time working with university. Jill Francis, part of our transfer pricing team, closely monitoring the international developments around transfer pricing. And Evie Geerts, part of our international tax team and having obviously a specific focus on the more international tax developments. And I invited you all here. Welcome, first of all, but I invited you here because, well, we have seen quite some developments over the past uh, months. And um, I think we're also uh, looking forward to a week of webinars on the different topics. Um, maybe just uh, just to kick off, um, Jean-Philippe, um, a lot happened over the summer. Uh, was that the reason that we needed a, a full webinar week to keep uh, everyone uh, up to up to speed with everything? Yes, indeed, Peter, and, and welcome everyone from my side as well. So over summer, when many of us were enjoying holidays, uh, a lot of things happened. And of course, first of all, as you know, we had this outcome statement uh, mid of July by the OECD and, and more precisely the inclusive framework on the two pillar so solution. So you had there on the one hand pillar one, uh, pillar one uh, progress that has made on uh, has been made on amount A, uh, so the relocation of tax rights to market jurisdictions. But as well, we have we've seen uh, guidance on a uh, draft guidance on amount B, on which as well uh, there was a public consultation running until uh, the first of September. With uh, amount B, a more coordinated approach to uh, baseline marketing and distribution activities. So progress on pillar one, amount A, amount B, but then as well, most importantly, as well, pillar two. Uh, so as well, mid-July, important documents released on, on pillar two. We had the global information return, additional administrative guidance with uh, for some of us, so for some countries, and very important, we have additional uh, safe harbors there, additional guidance on safe harbors. And as well, we have seen uh, the draft subject to tax rule. So lots have happened with respect to pillar one, pillar two there, but and one would almost forget that as well, there are other important tax developments happening uh, outside uh, besides pillar one, pillar two. So there as well, we have seen uh, last week, we have seen that the, uh, that, that the European Commission last uh, released a draft uh, BFIT proposal, but as well together with that one, a draft uh, directive for a draft transfer pricing directive. Besides that, we still have as well public CBCR ongoing, important developments on uh, on working from anywhere. So lots of developments ongoing. And for that, uh, for those reasons, we decided it would be good to organize a webinar, uh, a tree log, because that much is going on. And so on tomorrow at Tuesday 19th, we will organize a webinar on pillar one, amount A, amount B on Wednesday the 20th. We will focus, the focus will be on pillar two. And on Thursday, the 21st, the focus will be on the other on other important developments. Important topic will, of course, be then the BFIT, uh, the BFIT proposal and the draft TP proposal, but other developments such as uh, working from anywhere, uh, public CBCR will be discussed as well. Okay, yeah, uh, thanks, Jean-Philippe. So uh, for people in the audience, eh, you can still register. Eh? If you hear this podcast on time, I would say, you can still register for the webinars, you will find also in the description uh, to this podcast so uh, more than welcome uh, to join and to, to get an update basically on all of these developments now um, Jean-Philippe uh, one particular topic I find interesting is the the BFIT proposal um, so um, it, I think this has a, a long gray beard I would say although it's a new proposal but but can you recap a bit for the audience uh, the, the history of BFIT 
Yes, and I, I will I will not go to the to the, the whole history because of the origin of a, a harmonized corporate income tax system uh, got already well very long time ago. But of course, more concrete was in uh, that the European Commission came with a proposal in 2011 at a triple CTB. And then as well, you had the same one in, in 2016 in an, uh, an updated proposal. Uh, member states could not reach uh, uh, unanimity there. No agreement was found. And now, uh, well now 2023 a new uh, proposal under the name BFIT where does this come from well you for those who remember in 2021 the European Commission released its communication on business taxation for the 21st century and one of the action points in there was the a new uh, a new proposal for a harmonized corporate and corporate income tax system in Europe called uh, BFIT standing for business in in a uh, business in Europe framework for a uh, business Europe uh, framework for income uh, taxation. There, what are the, the main advantages of such, uh, of this BFIT proposal? Well, according to the Commission, this would clearly uh, reduce compliance costs and facilitate cross-border business. Why? Because you only have to file uh, one tax return, uh, one tax return in the country where the, normally the ultimate parent entity is located, and you would not have to deal with all corporate income. 27 corporate income tax system in every country. So just uh, subject to one corporate income tax system. That's the idea behind it. And of course, that's the advantage with it will be that you can do a cross-border loss offsetting uh, within the EU. If we look at uh, at the proposal, uh, well, uh, maybe first important, what is the date they're looking at? Well, under the under the draft proposal, member states should implement this by uh, uh, trans transpose this legislation, then propose legislation into their domestic law by 1st January 2028. And it would then be proposed date of application would be 1st uh, July 2028. So uh, still five years, about five years uh, from now. Maybe then looking at the, a bit at the content of the proposal, there uh, a first important dis difference is that under the old uh, triple CTB uh, proposals, there always was a key argument was a formulary apportionment so that you uh, allocate profits based on uh, on assets that you have on personnel you have and uh, uh, sales uh, sales in a market jurisdiction. That is currently uh, not in the proposal. They foresee in a transition period, uh, which would last till uh, 30 June 20, uh, 2035, which would be based on uh, this transitional allocation of profits to the member states based on the average of the taxable results of the, of the last uh, three years. So there, a first important difference, why probably to, uh, to facilitate uh, discussions when, when they see it's hard to find uh, between member states agreement on formulary apportionment. Let's start with, uh, with a transition, uh, a transitional uh, allocation formula. So that's uh, as background uh, with respect to the BFIT proposal. Yeah, thanks, Jean-Philippe. So um, very interesting. So basically, if I understand well, uh, the commission is proposing a complete new European corporate tax system. Evie, can you explain us a bit more in detail what, what's in that proposal then? Yeah, sure. Happy to, Peter. And uh, I can imagine that people listening to this uh, podcast think BFIT and we're just digesting pillars too. How the hell are we going to, um, to combine this? Well, um, the Commission clearly states that obviously they have taken into account um, when writing these rules what the impact of pillars 2 will be. 
So some um, things are similar, and I'll comment on, on a number of those uh, throughout my explanation. But there are, unfortunately, quite a number of uh, corrections and um, exclusions you need to do that are not 100% the same. But let's first maybe start with the scope, where there is already, obviously, um, a difference. The scope would be mandatory um, for groups um, operating within the EU. Um, above the 750 million threshold, so a very well-known threshold. We know that from country-by-country country reporting from Pillar 2, so uh, that is very much in line, but with a 75% ownership interest. So that is maybe a first deviation to take into account. So um, the scope of the group you've set for Pillar 2 purposes, for example, will not be the same um, under BFIT. Um, then um, you don't have to be um, EU headquartered necessarily, um, although obviously EU headquartered groups fall within the scope of BFIT. Non-EU headquartered groups can also fall within the scope if they meet a minimum footprint in the EU in terms of turnovers. Um, so also, again, if you're not EU headquartered, this will uh, also apply to you. So for the groups above, an, above the 750 million, it will become mandatory. Um, but the EU also says look for smaller groups below the 750 million um, euro threshold. It is an optional system. So it's not necessarily the case that you will be completely out of scope or that you could not opt into the um, to the system. Then if we look at um, how it is calculated, it will start from um, the accepted accounting standards, so similar to Pillar 2, um, and a kept, uh, but an acceptable accounting standards within the EU. So I can imagine that for non-EU headquartered groups, there will be a deviation there. So uh, it would, for example, be IFRS or local GAP, but the local GAP within the EU. Um, so for the ones reporting on IFRS, this might be a bit simpler for the ones, for example, reporting under US GAP or under Chinese GAP or whatever. In addition, um, obviously, again, this is starting base, non-consolidated, and then you have a number of corrections that are foreseen in the draft uh, text. So you will add disallowed expenses, link to fines and penalties, for example. You make, will make exclusions for corporate income taxes, also linked uh, to the Pillar 2 taxation, QDMTT. Then, and also in personally, I find it quite interesting with my Belgian background, um, you will have exclusions for dividends and capital gains, so in line with Pillar 2, but you will not exclude them 100%, you will only exclude them 95%. So there again, a deviation. Profits and losses for PEs will be need to be reallocated. So again, some things we know from the Pillar 2 um, mechanics, um, some differences or additions you will need to do under this BFIT proposal. Then, um, as Jean-Philippe already mentioned, this is a, a, a separate system, um, but also a separate corporate income tax system with uh, specific deviation rules, uh, sorry, depreciation rules. I will not go into the details, but if we go if you look throughout the proposed document, you see that there are a specific uh, depreciation rules for tangible assets, goodwill, etc. So also there, um, you might deviate from your local rules. And yet again, there might be um, a different calculation uh, required. 
Then in terms of uh, the starting point, um, so how will it be, be allocated? Jean-Philippe already hinted to it as well, but there is a transition period foreseen, foreseen where you basically start your calculation um, and then specifically uh, the allocation to the different member states, uh, because it's great that you have this BFIT basis, but you will need to um, allocate it between the different territories in within the EU in which you operate. They start on an average um, of the three previous years. So for the first year, you will look into the average three years before and then you kind of have a system where each year, so if you're in the first year um, of the BFIT proposal, you will calculate that first year according to the BFIT rules, but yet again, you take an average over the three years. After the three years, you go into a full BFIT calculation and allocation. So, Peter, quite a long explanation, but in a nutshell, um, there are some similarities with Pillar 2, but there are some clear deviations as well. This is presented as something that will uh, make compliance, um, corporate income tax compliance, easier for multinational groups within the EU. But if I go through the rules, the deviations and the uh, requirements to do the allocation, I personally have my doubts whether within the first years of application of this directive, this really will be a simplification for multinational groups. And maybe Evie, just to, to add from my part on, on what you and Jean-Philippe mentioned on sort of that transition period in the, the initial years until, you know, 2035, I believe, is, is sort of the proposal after which we would then potentially move towards the, the formulary apportionment um, system. So moving away from the arm's length principle. And that's actually... You know, roughly a year ago, the, there was a call for evidence which came out from the EU around this BFIT proposal, where the, the direction of travel was really clear on we are moving towards formulary apportionment, very, very similar to the triple CTB proposals uh, in the past, where the formula, it was based on sales, assets, labor costs, etc. Um, now, of course, as you mentioned, there would sort of be that transitional stage before you would move into that formulaic system. And the, the reason I, I wanted to jump in here is because um, at the time of that call for evidence, we actually did uh, a bit of an analysis using public data to see, okay, if we would move towards such a formulary approach, what would that mean for countries in the EU? And yeah, bearing in mind a lot of the limitations, of course, that, that you have with using public information, we, we did find quite some interesting observations, maybe not that surprising, but what you could actually see is that um, the, the larger and richer EU countries, they would significantly benefit from a formulaic approach on almost all of the three factors, so sales, assets, uh, labor. Whereas the, the smaller open economies, they would yeah, basically give up taxable base uh, in, in favor of those bigger countries. So it will be interesting to see how this develops um, and also to what extent there will be an impact assessment coming out from, from the EU themselves. Uh, in the BFIT proposal, there, there is mentioning towards an impact assessment. I, I don't think that was actually published or made publicly available. Um, so I, I wonder to what extent the you know the, there would be an impact assessment done in detail on moving to a formulaic approach uh, as this.
proposal develops further. Yeah, and maybe to yeah. add there, I wasn't 100% clear that transition period uh, is applicable from 28 until 35 before you go into the system, as you just explained. Thanks, uh, Jelevi. I think it's extremely interesting to see that uh, the direction of travel eh, that the Commission is taking uh, with this proposal. And, and uh, again, for those of the audience who want to know more, uh, do do not hesitate to register for the webinar uh, we will give on that uh, topic. Um, but there was more than just the BFIT proposal. There was also a second uh, proposal for directive, uh, Gilles, and that had more to do with, uh, with transfer pricing. Uh, can you also tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So that the transfer pricing proposal that is that is new. So that doesn't have as long a history as sort of the BFIT with the triple CTB, uh, etc. Maybe uh, before we we sort of dive into what was actually in that proposal, uh, just a few points to to clarify. So in terms of timing. Um, for BFIT, as was mentioned, the, the go-live date would be in 2028. For the TP directive, the ambition is for that one to go live already in uh, January 26, so uh, two years before. And then also in terms of scope, uh, there would be no limitations in the transfer pricing uh, directive in terms of revenue threshold, etc. So that would be uh, applicable to to everyone basically so those are two important deviations i think that are that are worth pointing out uh compared to the bfit proposal now what is in that tp or the proposal for the transfer pricing directive it's essentially two main blocks the first block is introduction of the oecd guidelines into an eu directive and the second block is sort of a common agreement on practices, interpretations, etc., as these OECD guidelines are applied in practice. Maybe just to say a couple of words on each. So for the first one, so the, the introduction of the OECD guidelines into an EU directive, essentially there would be a mechanism that would be introduced whereby the latest version of the OECD guidelines would apply automatically in the EU, to the extent, of course, that through the, the workings of the OECD, the EU has approved that latest version of the OECD guidelines. There is sort of an open question in my mind around what they will do with prior years. Will there be sort of a dynamic or more static interpretation to, to sort of audit prior years? Um, maybe a, another point of note um, is that, you know, while the, the core focus or, or sort of principle is that the OECD guidelines would be applicable in their entirety, certain specific portions of the OECD guidelines were specifically mentioned in the directive as well. For example, conduct, conduct versus contract, the TP methods, etc. So there's a question there as to why these specific elements were ring-fenced and, and put specifically in the directive. Um, and then maybe as a final point to note on, on this block um, is that the, the directive does open the room for specific additional directives on certain elements, such as around uh, hard-to-value intangibles, uh, how to remunerate services, cost contribution arrangements, financial transactions, etc. 
So those might be areas where the EU could be looking to deviate from the, from the OECD guidelines. At this stage, that's not part of the proposal, but it does open the door for, for doing that in the future. Um, the second block, as I mentioned, was around um, yeah, an agreement on common practices interpretations. Just to give a few examples here, here they mention the, the concept of ownership would be set at a 25%. So as soon as you own 25% into a different entity, so it could be part of a joint venture, um, at that stage, the, the transfer pricing guidelines would apply. This 25% threshold would also be uh, of quite some importance for uh, benchmarking studies. And then uh, maybe a second example is using the interquartile range. So there they, they clearly mentioned that there's sort of the lower quartile to the upper quartile would be the, the arm's length range. And then maybe just a final example uh, to mention is uh, around transfer pricing documentation requirements. So there, there would be some sort of common transfer pricing documentation, templates, guidance, et cetera, uh, for, for everyone operating within the EU. A question there would be whether that is purely in addition to local legislation uh, or whether it would replace existing uh, compliance requirements in, in territories. Okay, thanks for quite a um, yeah, comprehensive proposal. Um, on TP, uh, one particular element that I found very interesting is the the explicit reference to downward adjustments. Uh, I think where uh, a downward transpricing adjustment would only be accepted uh, in my own wording. That is, if if it's uh, um, uh, resulting in an upward adjustment in another territory, is that is that linked to the stated case issue? Would that be the reason they they included that? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one, and I think it is, Peter. Um, so I think the explicit wording that the that is in the directive is that a member state can only perform a downward adjustment if an amount equal to the downward adjustment is included in the profit of the associated enterprise in the other jurisdiction. So this does appear to be a direct response to the EU state aid case on, on excess profit, uh, I, I think. Um, and it will be interesting to explore how the explicit introduction of this requirement as part of this proposed directive, um, how that would affect the state aid proceedings on excess profit. And we're actually expecting the initial court decision on excess profit on Wednesday this week, so the 20th of September. Um, that's only in first instance, of course, that decision. But uh, it will be definitely be interesting to see how this plays out um, in potential next stages. What is worth noting as well on the topic of state aid, Peter, is that the directive doesn't appear to introduce the, the sort of broader EU arm's length principle, which was used by the EU state aid commissioner uh, in a number of cases, but then consistently rejected by the EU courts, so that is that is not part um, of of this directive. Okay, yeah, thank you for that, and and yeah, all very very interesting to see these proposals. Um, 
yeah, that's a little bit what I wanted to discuss with all of you in, in, in this podcast. Um, reminding everyone, uh, if you want to know more about these topics or get an update on Pillar 1, Pillar 2, don't hesitate to register for the for the webinars that will be held this later this week. Uh, normally, I would now ask you all, uh, how feasible do you think that all these proposals are? But um, let's keep that a bit as a, as a teaser for the people to attend uh, the, the webinars, as this will be extensively discussed also in, in, in the webinars. Thank you, everyone, for joining this podcast. Thank you for my speakers. And uh, we hope to reconnect in the next episode of the podcast series. Thank you.